Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein at GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3 R, and we've got an hour of science for you now with some wonderful guests coming in from, uh, well, down the southeast of uh, Melbourne, I suspect. In the studio with me, though, is Dr. Lyndon. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you today? Are you enjoying feeling a bit damp? <laughs> I love it. I love the rain. Oh, me too. Was, uh, I love the, the sort of waterlogged element. I actually, uh, well, before we get into that, Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. <laughs> Lives here doing our Twitter feed. I went to the golf driving range yesterday at uh, Albert Park. It was undercover. Oh, okay. okay. And, you know, it's great. It's great. You're just hitting into the rain. It's fantastic. It's great. It's great. Yeah. And, you know, I know there was a lot of things happening yesterday. The races were on. There were quite a few music festivals happening around the state. But the weather, I thought, was such that... You know, you could just commit, just commit to the mud yeah. and, oh, and yeah. get into it. You know, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a very dramatic rain. It was just a, this is what's happening yeah. today. Everybody enjoy it. It's yeah. great. I should say a, a big apology to the semi-professional or professional golfers that were practicing at that driving range who had to put up my seven-year-old every now and then going, oh, dad, that was awesome at the top <laughs> of his voice, <laughs> which is pretty funny. But, uh, you know, kids, hey, it's a public what? place. Was it awesome? Uh, there were a couple of crackers, okay. absolute All crackers, right. and I'm feeling it today because I haven't played golf in ages. Did, <laughs> you like, son, <laughs> did you let your son play as well, or was he just there for sport? Yeah, yeah, my boys hit something like 150 balls between them. Wow. wow. Yeah, yeah, I'm sore from hitting two. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. A golf yeah. injury. I don't know how well, often they happen. Well, there's certain muscles in the calf, you know, and you just think, geez, did I, how did I do that? And, oh, I must have done that either getting out of the car <laughs> or playing golf. So, yeah, it happens. Anyway. Let's get into some science news, though. Dr. Linden, what have you got? I have... I actually, I can't realize, I can't believe that we haven't really spoken about this before. With Ailey and I combined, you've got two climate scientists on the show. Yep. And I thought I'd better give you an update about what's going on above Antarctica. Oh. Because yeah, this okay. is actually yep. something that's happening this year that doesn't happen very often that... It's very high up, it's quite far away from us, uh, but it has some big implications for the weather that's going to happen in Australia in the next couple of months. And the science is fascinating. This is one of those situations where the science, the climate scientists are saying, oh, this is so interesting, but also, oh, I hope this doesn't happen because oh it could be yeah. kind of bad, yeah. right? So in the wintertime, every I've year... I've always... Sorry, I, just stop you there because I've oh. always wondered that. Like, you guys must see a hurricane on the radar and go, oh, yeah. And then part of you goes... I shouldn't feel that. This is this particular what's happening at the moment. I can hear it in people's tones. They're like, "Oh man, the data are going to be so good," yeah. but also, oh no, this is, this <laughs> is looking really, really could be quite dangerous. Yeah. Okay. So, so what happens every winter uh, when the sun disappears from Antarctica and it's dark and cold there for for winter time? Mm. We get a big temperature difference, of course, between the equator and the pole, right? Air is trying to get from the warm part to the cold part and the Earth spinning around. So what we get around Antarctica is what's known as a polar vortex or a night jet. This like whirlpool of very cold air um, peaks at about 200 kilometres per hour, the westerly wow. winds that spin around Antarctica, higher up in the atmosphere. So above where most of our weather is, the troposphere, it's up into the stratosphere. That's where most of the ozone sort of layer forms, yep. right? 
That happens in the wintertime and then in the spring, in the summer, as the sun kind of comes back and Antarctica and the air above Antarctica warms up, that jet or that sort of uh, vortex breaks down. That happens every year. It happens in the Northern Hemisphere. It happens in the Southern Hemisphere. This year, it's breaking down faster than normal, right? Mm. And this happens sometimes in the Northern Hemisphere, more often, uh, you know, when they have that polar vortex news when it gets really cold in the US sometimes. That's when this kind of really strong winds around Antarctica, or the Arctic, sorry, um, break down and they, that kind of cold air spills out over, over the US. But in Antarctica or in the Southern Hemisphere, it doesn't happen that often. We don't have as many weather systems that can disrupt this jet. We don't have as many mountain ranges that can mess with the winds up there. But this year, what we're seeing is these winds are breaking down earlier than normal, which uh, has a couple of good implications for the ozone hole. So if things are warming up there faster than normal, then uh, the chemicals that break down ozone don't have as much of a chance to form which is good for the ozone hole situation. But studies have shown, particularly uh, research that's been done by the Bureau of Meteorology, and actually a new paper came out just a couple of weeks ago, studies have shown that if this happens, then the chances of having a warmer or drier spring and summer are much, much more likely, right? In Australia. In Australia, because what happens is you get this wind breaking down and then there's sort of a trickle-down effect until you're into the part of the atmosphere where that weather happens, and that affects the westerly winds over us. Right, mm. And the thing that makes this really cool, scary, but cool. cool, is that this year, the climate scientists, the Bureau, were able to see this breakdown above Antarctica happening in August, in like oh. July and August. So in, in the wintertime, they were able to say, um, I think statistically, the way that we understand that how the, the atmosphere works, we're in for a hot and dry spring and early summer. Wow. Which means there's a predictive skill of like three or four months. Yeah, interesting. I don't know why you're not more impressed by this. It's, well, it's no, I'm just thinking this through because to me, I, I mean, the predictive element of this is phenomenal. Mm. But the one of the things I always question is, you know, like the last couple of weeks we've had a few hot days. Yep. And it's interesting at the moment because I think you often perceive this in the context of society and the environment you're in. So at the moment... you climate climate sort of disaster stuff is all front of mind you know where you know some of us have been to the rallies you know mm-hmm. um it's all front of mind so the, if there's a hot day in august or there's a hot day in october we mm. go holy shit mm. you know something's gone and i think it's important to take those days and so map those visually back to that time of year every year for the last 50 yep. years or whatever yep. and say okay was there a day of 30 in november mm-hmm. you know 20 years ago yep. and the answer of course is yes of yep. course yeah sometimes um, it does happen and it does happen. And, you know, and as, as we know of Melbourne weather, we're, we're now back to, hey, guess what? You know, I'm going to dump a few buckets of water on you mm-hmm. every day, you know, for, for, for a week. Mm. And, and this happens. But when, when you hear about these, I, I remember talking um, about this over the years with El Nino and how this, these big changes in the weather occur and are predicted and then show, you know, average things changing. So not individual days, but no. the average things changing. So in this case, this, how do you measure this break, you know, when you talk about measuring this, seeing this breakdown, mm. measuring this breakdown, mm. I mean, is this all weather balloon stuff or is this satellites? So How are they determining stuff. that the wind speed now is breaking down? Yeah, so they, they use satellites. There are a few, and you can also look at uh, past reconstructions of what the atmosphere looked mm. like using satellite information and weather balloons and lots yep. of different sources of information. And normally these westerly winds, they have a certain time of year that they break down. But uh, 
in other years they have been found to break down earlier and occasionally they'll even reverse. They'll break down right. so quickly that they'll wow. start going the other way around. This is the definition of these um, polar vortex breakdowns or they're called sudden stratospheric warming events where the stratosphere okay. will just warm quite quickly. And so yeah. we can monitor that. But I think what is cool about this, so we know a lot about El Ninos and La yep. Ninas and, and what we've got going on now with Australia is we've got some really cool ocean temperatures to the west, the northwest of Australia in the Indian Ocean, and that is a big driver of why we're not getting a lot of rain this year. Mm. So these are our two big climate drivers that we talk yep. about. But this one, being able to understand what's happening around the Southern Ocean, the westerly winds that bring for us in, in Southern yeah. Australia that bring rain or don't bring rain. Yeah, yeah. They normally change on a week-to-week -week scale, whereas El Nino mm. conditions sort of change year-to-year. -year. But being able to predict what they're going to do a few months in advance... Yeah, it's wild. It, it is. It's, yeah. it's really... It's very exciting. And, and have we seen a change? Because this is already happening, obviously, yep. and they were seeing yep. this early. Have we seen a change in things like snowfall as a result? Snowfall, well... <laughs> Oh, goodness me. No, no, no. Um, but the, the relationship that this study has found is that what we see happening in August above Antarctica mm -hmm. then trickles down and starts affecting us ah. from like October to January. Right, right. So it's that relationship. outside of that range. No, it takes time for that to kind of and wiggle my, through. My final question, I can see Ray's getting edgy in his seat <laughs> no, for no, a turn, I, I, but I, 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 what's the... Um, what's the effect in Antarctica itself? Well, yeah, that's the other thing. So... With these wind patterns kind of changing by the time they get down mm. to the weather level, the, the tropospheric level, they are suggesting that this will speed up some sea ice melt okay. in particular parts of Antarctica. Not the best. Yeah, not so the best. How often does this happen? I mean, you said we don't have mountains down here and less things perturb it. So how often does the this spill of the polar vortex happen early in the in, southern in hemisphere the we've only seen it happen once before in 2002 so you can look at year to year and say this one happened a little bit early this one happened a little mm. bit early but we've only ever had one other southern stratospheric warming one kind of quite dramatic event before in, two, in 2002 and there was lots of analysis done on that one and now this other one being able to catch it as it was happening and now they're monitoring it really closely i think so, that's why so the dry, scientists are excited drier hotter yeah it just means that the westerly winds are a little bit um further north than normal okay. which in the yep. winter is good for victoria it means cold fronts come yep. for us yep. but in the spring and the summer it means we're getting that warmer dry air from yeah. the continent it means drier and it means um enhanced fire risk mm. and more mm. heat more hot days the new study from earlier this week well said hot days hotter well, so they've done the analysis on extremes as well, like yeah. the day level stuff, yeah, not yeah. monthly averages and those kinds of things. Very exciting and oh. happy news. Thank you, uh, <laughs> Dr. Linden. It's, I guess it's, uh, it's scary. The, the science is amazing behind yeah. it. Though. The science of being able to do that and that level of predictivity in predictivity, is that the word? Predictableness? Predictiveness? I don't know, something like that. Yes. Uh, is great. Yeah, it's, but what, uh, keep, it, keep yeah. an eye out for it in the next yeah. couple of weeks. Very cool. Mm. Dr. Ray? Dr. Shane, I, oddly enough, I, I, I have a weather-related story as well. Um, <laughs> I don't, and, just FYI. <laughs> uh, so we've all seen lightning before. Hey. Uh, it happens in, often we think, a fraction of a second. We see lightning goes from clouds to clouds. So lightning is kind of in a, a set elevation range, about 20 kilometers. Lightning's only going to be 20 kilometers tall. 
But how long do you reckon lightning can be laterally going from place to place across from cloud to cloud? A oh, single bolt of lightning. Single bolt? I would have thought tens of kilometers, if not further. Yeah, that's what I thought as well. And, mm. and, and part of that is if we're ground-based, that's about the best we can see unless you've mm. got a connected set of ground-based networks. And they have to operate rather quickly. Well, apparently, because they in 2016, they l- launched the first of the geostationary lightning mappers satellites on the GOES-16. And in 2018, they launched the GOES-17, creative names there. Um, they actually have these geostationary lightning mappers, which are giving us an entire new view of how long lightning can be. Uh, and, and so the world record for lightning prior to these being launched was actually 321 kilometers wow. over Oklahoma in 2007. And, and that sounds long. But the, now that they've been mining the, the, the GO-16 data, uh, researchers from Colorado have actually observed a bolt of lightning that went over 500 kilometers so it went from Texas across all of Oklahoma, and very often, un- infrequently do you say all of Oklahoma, into Kansas in, in October 2017. And the bolt of lightning illuminated 68,000 square kilometers of area. Wow. I had to look that up. That's roughly slightly smaller than Hokkaido. Hmm. Uh, and um, mm, a, l- a fair bit smaller than Ireland. But Ireland's not as big as I thought it was as well. Um, and, and, and so... They thought, oh, well, we're starting to break records. Now, the lightning bolts have to be certified. They do ground monitoring and the satellite monitoring. So the certified record is 321. But GOES-17, researchers in 2018 already also found, observed a 673-kilometer-long lightning bolt over Brazil, which apparently has some of the most powerful and expansive thunderstorms on Earth. Um, And this is the other thing that freaked me out about that one. So that one illuminated 114,000 square kilometers, which is well larger than the size of Ireland. Um, And it lasted 13 and a half seconds. Hmm. Is how long it took for that's that's forever that, in lightning yeah. terms. Yeah, yeah. How that, I don't I'm, I don't even understand how that would happen. So the the difference, the build up, and then the discharge required was so large. So the discharge takes time to propagate. So yeah. I mean, the reason you see a lightning bolt and it appears to head towards the ground is because it takes time. It's not and, instantaneous. And and these distances are long enough. Mm. Uh, but I mean, but but. Dr. Linden's right. What this really gets at is we, how much uh, electricity we think the atmosphere can generate may need some revision. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, is it just this has always been there and we just haven't been able to observe it because you actually have really good satellite-based monitoring now? That maybe, you know, could you see a thousand kilometer long lightning bolt? And also my understanding of lightning is that it often takes the path of least resistance and that... That, that well, seems like quite a lengthy path. Well, it's just it, well, it, it, discharge, right? locally it's dielectric breakdown. So it, it, it feels what the path of re- least resistance is. And this is why if you're in a thunderstorm standing between two big buildings, it can you have dielectric breakdowns. So the lightning can propagate between the two buildings to some poor, unfortunate person standing in the middle of the road. Holding a golf club. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, but th- that idea of it, it's not going to be a straight line. I would love to see if they've ever mapped the pattern of of how it got through there because it won't be straight. It'll go up and down, Mm. but it has three-dimensional freedom, right? It could go up and down in that 20-kilometer height range and probably propagate now. All over the way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Imagine the the clap. Oh, 
Yeah, or claps. Or claps. <laughs> probably go for a while. That. Yeah, probably go for a wow. while. In fact, it'd just be like a rolling bit of thunder that would continue. Yeah. Oh. Now, I wanted to mention something which I, I find uh, this is sort of one of these statistical things that is so unlikely that it's kind of exciting. So, um, and this is work that was done by an amateur astronomer. So, not one of the professional astronomy um, organizations, although they're all on it now. Um, but the work started with uh, Tadashi Kojima, who um, was in the Gamma Prefecture in Japan. First uh, of November 2017, he was looking through his telescope and he found uh, something uh, there that shouldn't have been there, which is often what happens with amateur astronomers. You know, they have a good understanding of the field of stars, they're taking photographs, and this is how most comets are actually discovered. There's, there's, you know, there's an extra one uh, that shouldn't have been there. And in this case, he found this um, particular image of a star that basically the star he was looking at... Um, was about 1,600 light years away. So this is relatively close um, to us, you know, so well within our galaxy and, and really, really pretty close. But um, the problem was this particular star moved in front of another star that was in the background that was about 2,600 kilometres away. And what happened there is something that we, we talk about a bit uh in astronomy this idea of lensing or gravitational lensing and this is what happens when um when the fabric of space is kind of bent a bit by a big object and we see this all the time you can see pictures of this but it's usually caused by entire galaxies or really large objects or even sometimes clusters of galaxies and what what sits behind them um comes you know the light comes towards you and it has the effect similar to there being literally a lens like something out of your glasses between you and that object what happens in this case, though, is a little bit more unique. It's called microlensing, because if you think about it, the chance of a galaxy getting in your way is not, you know, not that remote. But the chance of a single star coming between you and another star is like, you know, needle in a haystack or needle in a stack of needles kind of stuff. It's really, it's really unusual that this happens. And in addition, this is this has another part of it that's very unusual. And that is. If you look towards a part of the galaxy where there's a bucket load of stars, like so, say, for example, the centre of the galaxy, then the chance of getting two stars to line up is pretty, pretty, you know, reasonable. But if you look in the other direction, you look out towards the outskirts of the galaxy, eh, very little chance. This star was in that region. So these two stars aligned in that region. Now, you think, well, who cares? What's the big deal? Well, what what happens is when you get light from one object passing through another, it allows you to determine things like its mass and how big it is if you're getting this lensing effect because how much lensing occurs depends on the mass of the objects and the way they're orientated. And in this case, what they found was that this star, the close one, had a Neptune-sized planet in an orbital space about where Earth is around our star. And... Um, and this, this all changed the way the lensing was working. So, of course, fast forward two years, and now you know half the telescopes around the world are all looking at this nearby star because it has a planet candidate, which they you know they're now confirmed, and they are looking at it because it's one of those ones that you know if you want to look at really cool, unusual things um, around these stars, you want them to be relatively close. You don't want to be looking in other galaxies to find these things. You want the ones that are nearby. So a Neptune-sized planet, which is not Neptune's not as big as some people think. Actually, it's not that huge, but in Earth's orbit and around a relatively cooler star, so not quite as warm as our sun. And this is a region where a lot of these gas giants tend to form around these stars. So it's, it's kind of cool. It's really close, relatively speaking, in astronomy terms. And I love the fact that it was found by some amateur astronomer. Often this is what occurs. So why, why had everybody else missed it? Well, here's the thing. Um, 
and and I should have mentioned this, but these alignments only occur for relatively short periods of time. Uh, but right, how so, long is relatively short in uh, astronomical uh, terms? You know, probably weeks to months I'm, guess, oh, wow. I'm guessing but it's it's relatively short i mean because these objects are still a long way away and they're moving relatively fast compared to us and we're moving around you know our stars moving in the galaxy as well so the alignment of individual stars is pretty hard to get when you're talking about a whole galaxy that lasts for a long long time so does that mean then that if the overlap is now no longer happening it's kind of two years later the information that is that they're able to get back is changing or degrading? Well, so this, of course, remember this information is 1,600 years old uh, mm-hmm. because of the, you know, the length of time it takes to get from the start. But, um, but it doesn't matter about the microlensing alignment anymore. Like, you, don't, you know, we now know that there's a planet around that star. So it's given us the information uh, that we need. Mm-hmm. And now we can say, you know what, we need to pay a lot more attention to that star because we happen to know for a fact that there is a big Neptune type at least a Neptune-like planet, there could be others, happening, you know, orbiting around that star. And so we can get some of the more powerful telescopes to have a look at that star and just you know, sit there and watch it and see if we can find some of the other ways that we determine planetary you know, um, orbits around stars. So, for example, at some stage, if you stare at that star long enough and the planet travels between the star and us, the light from the star will dim just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's how we traditionally find them. But... You know, there's only so many stars you can look at. Isn't isn't that how the Nobel Prize in Physics was for finding the first exoplanet? Yeah, that way yeah, and year? and we know that the Kepler spacecraft literally found thousands of mm-hmm. candidates, but every one of those candidates has to be confirmed by a ground-based telescope afterwards. But in this case, we're kind of going the other way. An amateur astronomer has used microlensing, which is almost never used in this way, like it's so, because it's just so rare. And has, you know, now the larger telescopes are looking at it and confirming it, which is, you know, it's kind of cool. It's not exactly, you know, citizen science, but it's pretty close. Um, you know, some of these amateur astronomers, if you look at their gear, it's, it's pretty fancy. I hope they continue to be involved, though. I mean, I'm not sure oh. what the culture is where some more professional societies would just say, thank you, and yeah, never I speak think to these. Astron- astronomy tends to be one of those fields, though, where a lot of credit is given. And when you read these articles, a lot of credit is given to this individual. Um, and then that these individuals often have good associations with astronomical, you know, societies and, you know, organizations around the world. And they all have you know, because astronomy is a global game. It's not like a lot of fields of science. You know, because the Earth spins, there's going to be a period where you can't watch that object and you need someone else to do it for mm-hmm. you. So you have to collaborate with other countries and other astronomers. It's one of the most, you know, collaborating organizations in the world. So, yeah, it's kind of cool. Anyway, we're going to take a break and we'll be back with some more science with our two guests in just a few minutes. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Melinda Coughlin. She is the JDRF Clinical Research Network Career Development Fellow and the Head of the Glycation, Nutrition and Metabolism Laboratory in the Department of Diabetes at Monash University. Welcome, Melinda. Did I miss anything? Good morning. How are you? I'm great. That's good. Um, it's good to have you in here. I mean, I, I saw the press release and the information coming out of, out of Monash uh, regarding your work, and it just seemed very exciting sure. in, in an area that we haven't really touched on before, which is this connection between diabetes and the kidneys. So what we might do, though, is just to make sure everyone's up to speed with regards to what's happening in the body in diabetes. Sure. I, I think most people have knowledge that, you know, you eat too much sugar and junk, you might end up with type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. But what, I mean, what's going on in the body 
when someone has diabetes? Sure. So when someone has diabetes, most of the food you eat is broken down into sugar and released into your bloodstream. Yep. And so when your blood sugar goes up, it signals to your pancreas to release insulin. And so insulin acts like a, a sort of a key to let the blood sugar into your body's cells uh, for use as energy. But um, in people with diabetes, your body either doesn't make enough insulin, and so mm-hmm. that is known as type 1 diabetes, or your body can't use the insulin it makes as well as it should. So when there's not enough insulin or when the cells stop responding to this insulin, too much blood sugar stays in your bloodstream. Yeah. And so over time, that can cause serious health problems such as heart disease, vision loss and kidney disease. Yeah, I suppose one of the things that people don't think about a lot is this issue of vision loss, because my understanding is a very large portion of the people who have vision loss in our society, actually, it's because of diabetes. Is that, Absolutely, that's right? yeah. because of diabetes or even because of pre-diabetes, which is when you have high blood sugar, but your blood sugar is not yet high enough to to go into the clinical cutoff of it's actually being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So how do you know you have pre-diabetes? This is a term you I don't, don't think is well known. So, <laughs> so if I go so to the doctor and I get some blood tests, do I say, because I know I don't have diabetes, I know that, um, but how do I know if I've got pre-diabetes? Sure, so your, your doctor would have to do um, a blood glucose test and yeah. a, a fasting blood glucose test and look at the levels of circulating glucose um, in your right. body. But the problem is, in most people with pre-diabetes, 90% of them do not know that they have pre-diabetes. Yeah. And so they're yeah. at such high risk to progressing along into type 2 diabetes. And, and how long do you have typically have pre-diabetes before you end up getting diabetes? Sure. Look, it, it, it depends. It's a very individual thing. It depends also on your diet and the amount of exercise that you yep. do. But it could last for a number of years. Okay. And is this something that, I mean, I'm not sure if you know, I know you do more research than and sort of in the clinic, but is this something that doctors often tell their patients? They say you have pre-diabetes or they say you are at high risk of developing diabetes or they say nothing? No, it depends. If, if you're overweight, you are at high risk mm. of developing diabetes. And so then generally your GP should do a blood sugar test when you go yeah. to the GP. Yeah. yeah. We, we get stuck in diagnostics for a while here because it's such an <laughs> interesting topic. But um, the other thing that I find curious when you have diabetes, and correct me if I'm wrong here and I'm out of date with what's available sure. for patients, but... I know, you know, my pancreas is producing amounts of insulin all day as needed by my body. Mm-hmm. But, uh, my, you know, my father's a diabetic and I see how he deals with it. And it's like a shot here and then a shot there. There's no continued release as required when someone has diabetes with the medication. So have we gotten around that yet? That issue of, you know, controlled release according to my, my levels at a given time? Well, you have to be continually testing your own mm. blood glucose levels. And if you have type 2 diabetes, you have to then inject enough insulin according to the amount of blood sugar you, you have. And right. also depending on how much carbohydrate okay. you eat. So. Yeah. Mm. Now, the connection between diabetes and the kidney, what's going on there? Sure. So... The kidney is actually a fairly underrated organ, and yep. so it's crucial for the health of your body. And in fact, that's why we have two kidneys, not one, just in case something happens to one yeah, kidney, you have yeah. to have a second one. And so it performs several important functions. So not only is it essential in blood pressure regulation, but it activates vitamin D, which is essential for healthy bones. It balances our water, it makes so it makes our urine, and it also filters the waste and um, toxins and cleans our blood. Mm. And so you can really think of the kidneys as 
um, a complex environmentally friendly waste disposal system. And so they sort of um, sort non-recyclable waste from recyclable wastes 24 hours a day, yep. seven days a week, while also cleaning your blood. Mm. It's, it's interesting that the timing there, because I know one of the big issues, and Dr. Linda and I were part of a, a program during the week where we, we were helping some students with science communication, but one of the ideas out of it was this idea of dealing with the time loss kidney patients have when they have to do dialysis and they literally lose something like 30 or 40 percent of their waking week sure absolutely sounds like it's it's such a a huge burden it's a very serious condition so we know that in people with diabetes and so people with type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes around one third of them will go on to develop diabetic kidney disease Hmm. and um with that, we know that it's a progressive disease, which means that um, we have a decline in renal function over time. Okay. And so the current medicines used um, at the moment don't stop this decline to end-stage renal mm. disease or renal do, failure. Do we know – it's interesting to me, and this is why I'm asking whether we know how much the de- – degradation in the kidneys is just the general degradation in the body because we know that patients who have type 2 diabetes also usually have cardiovascular problems their general sure. health is not as good is is the kidney problems there just more of that degradation or is there something specific happening due to the diabetes that's damaging sure. the kidneys we think really in very basic terms that it's an overload of all of this circulating blood sugar mm, which right. then travels into the kidneys and particular cells in the kidneys, the proximal tubule cells, cannot stop this influx of sugar into the cell, inside the cell. And there mm. we think that there's a cascade of mm. inflammation it's, and it's other an things that overflowing recycling right. bin, I guess. Absolutely. So um, what does potassium level have to do with this in the kidney? Because my, my father's a, a type 2 diabetic and they always worry about different vegetables and foods that he eats and their potassium level. And um, to get his potassium level down, they were so excited. They had a new drug. We're basically calling it a drug. You're basically eating eating a slurry. It looks pink. And uh, it absorbs potassium. And so there's something in, in your intestine. Um, and, uh, and, and so the, one of the things, cause he doesn't have renal problems, sure. but one of the, I guess, flags prior to renal problems is they worry about the potassium level in, in your do. blood is it, somehow linked sure. to kidney function, I in guess? In all patients with chronic kidney disease, you are supposed to restrict your potassium uh-huh. intake from fruits and vegetables. But, that's right. so, but that's not related to the, that, the things you're talking about, about no. those cells breaking down? No, that's not related to diabetic kidney disease itself. And so, Melinda, in your lab now, um, you're looking at some new ways to deal with this. What's, um, what's this new drug that you're sort of uh, trialling? Sure. So essentially what we've found is um, activation of the complement pathway. And this popped up as a sort of a lead um, several years ago. And so the complement pathway is a key part of our innate immune system, Mm -hmm. which is the first line of defence against pathogens. And we found we're doing some other um, sort of nutrition-related studies where we'd fed rodents an ultra-processed food diet for six months. And we were just looking, it was sort of a bit of discovery research, We we were looking in the blood at things that might have changed in the blood. And what popped up was activation of complement and Mm. in particular this specific protein complement c3 and this 
we thought this was quite unusual. We'd never come across this before. I didn't know anything about the complement pathway. And so I then got in touch with a, who's now a collaborator, Associate Professor Trent Woodruff from the University of Queensland. And so he's an expert in the complement pathway. And he suggested that we um, look at one of the major pro-inflammatory mediators of complement, which is this smaller molecule called C5A. Hmm. And does that and does this allow us to sort of prevent the damage from the kidney? Is that what that's going to do when we if we can implement this? Sure. So he gave us a new medicine that he had been looking at and trialing called PMX fifty three, and that actually stopped the binding of this inflammatory molecule C five A to its receptor C five A R one, and we we could show that when we give this medicine to diabetic mice that we actually can reduce renal injury wow. in the yeah. diabetic setting. I mean, it, it's interesting to me, and we're, we're pretty much out of time, but it's interesting to me, whenever whenever these things come up, it's always the immune system that's, that's the, the, the fault here. There seems inflammation, yes. whether it's in the heart or the head or the, the kidneys. It seems as though every time we have a guest on these days, it's something about dealing with these levels of inflammation, of inflammation. in the immune system. Absolutely. So this sounds like a, it sounds like a great uh, approach. And um, I think uh, when, when, will we, when will we see, is there a move towards clinical trials with this or are we still in the rodent model for a while? So we're in the rodent model for a while. Trent Woodworth, my collaborator, is developing these PMX compounds. He's making second and third generation compounds, which he's hoping would be more effective than the Mm -hmm. original one that we used in this study. Um, But I'm currently looking for a commercial partner. But you Mm -hmm. would imagine, I guess you have to think of the drug discovery pipeline, which takes 10 to 15 years to actually produce a drug at the end so we really are quite a long way away yeah well look it's it's fascinating work great to hear more stuff going on with uh, our understanding of the immune system just keeps um keeps improving so good luck there's a lot of people with diabetes so i think yes. this will be really helpful thank you so much melinda thanks for coming in and um we'll hopefully hear more about this in the future great thank you folks we're going to take a break for some station announcements and we'll be back in a moment with our second guest for today Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Uh, welcome back, everybody. In the studio with us now on Einstein and Gogo is Dr. Francine Marquez. She is the Senior Lecturer and Head of the Hypertension Research Laboratory in the National Heart Foundation and the National Heart Foundation Future Leader Fellow in the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. Francine, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I'm just going to get you to move a little closer to the microphone there. Um, they're scary. I know. They're, yeah. Anyway, uh, now, the last time we had you on, one of the things that we discussed was the fact that you had a very, very close uh, encounter with ovarian cancer. Yeah. And you were very lucky in being diagnosed. So just give us a quick recap on that. And yeah. yeah. So back in 2015, uh, I went to the doctor uh, to do a normal checkup. I had a cyst in one of my ovaries. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I came back for the results to check whether the cyst was growing or not, I found out that in the other side, I had something suspicious that could be ovarian cancer. And that end up being a diagnosis of stage three ovarian wow. cancer at age of yeah. 31. Yeah. yeah. And, and what's the survival rate at stage three? Uh, it's less than 50%. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So pretty significant. Yeah. And I think what we don't realize when we talk about survival uh, rates in cancer is that the survival rate might be like in this case, like less than 50%. But that means that there are the 50% of patients, the majority are also sick. 
Yeah, right. So it's not just about surviving, but surviving without cancer. Yeah. Now, you have now been cancer-free. You you, you, yes. you dealt with this, and you sent me a message during the week saying you've been cancer-free for five years? For four, four. Four years. years. Four years. Yeah, yep. so I finished chemo, uh, chemotherapy four years ago, yep. and I'm now on the 4.5 mark uh, of uh, survival after diagnosis, right. which is really remarkable. Yeah, and, and what is that in terms of the statistics of ovarian cancer? Because I know, I know when we use the term ovarian cancer we're referring to many different types of cancers which is one of the difficulties but how does that how does your experience fit with what people generally experience yeah um the minority um, okay. very very unfortunately i'm the minority uh most people that are diagnosed at the same time as me they're either uh like at this stage they wouldn't be alive or they would be sick again wow so i'm incredibly fortunate to be uh well and cancer free and alive yeah and we're very happy to have you back in the studio um what's what's the process going forward for you now though how often do you have to get checked i mean if you don't mind me asking you know yeah. how because this, this is something that I think as a researcher you approach this differently I know yeah. Yeah. so the first 12 months after you finish treatment you get checked every three months mm-hmm. and after the first 12 months you get checked every six months uh, after the five year mark uh, probably you go down to once every 12 months right yeah. yeah now I know the other thing that I wanted to just remind people of is what you did during your your cancer treatment process because you you took quite a significant amount of your time out to assist women who were you know feeling i guess you know like so much of them had been taken by the treatment process where they're losing their hair or or otherwise tell us about that yeah so something that i noticed being a researcher particularly is that uh, everybody like that i knew had the best of the intentions but they would come to me and tell me all sorts of stuff that there was no scientific base that would help with cancer so they would tell me oh you need to eat a head of garlic you know every day or a a glass of you know lemon juice so things that had absolutely nonsense and uh, um, as a researcher would go to uh, the literature to try to find evidence for that and I most of the cases I could never find anything so I decided to start a blog called Kimo and Beauty to try to support patients with uh, well-being and also uh, beauty uh, advice uh, that had some science base so for Mm. example how if you're doing chemotherapy and there is a risk of losing your hair you can wear a scalp cooling system that uh, has been shown scientifically to be effective against hair loss oh, wow. so okay. things like that that uh, can help a little bit patients we we know that like if you if you look better like if you, if you look in the mirror mirror and you don't see you know that uh, uh, bald head and you know that skin like so pale and everything else if you look uh, more like you you were before treatment you are more likely to feel better as yeah, well. Yeah, of so, course. yeah, so that's the main thing. Mm. So now you're four years cancer free. Congratulations, Thank Francine. You. This uh, beautiful gift that you're giving to other women who are going through treatment at the moment, is that something that you are actively still contributing to, or is it a little bit hard for you to do now? That's a very good question. Um, it is ha- much harder for me to do now. One of the reasons is because I do feel sometimes even a bit guilty for being cancer-free while I know that so many other people are not that had the same diagnosis. And I feel sometimes I'm a bit of a fraud now to be talking about cancer when Mm. I don't actively have cancer. Uh, Also, as a a new academic, uh, 
also my my days and my evenings are quite busy uh, compared to what they used to be when I was doing cancer treatment and working part time. So I don't uh, write as much, but I still uh, try to volunteer my time. So I sit in the consumer panels. I act as a consumer to some of my uh, colleagues, and I also volunteer talking to uh, patients and also researchers. Mm. Francine, just just to sort of open up a bit there on the the issue of your feeling fraudulent. I mean. My understanding, though, and, and this is based on the communications you and I have had over the last year, you still feel the fear of your cancer coming back uh, probably yes. daily. So I think you, you're not like the rest of the people in this room here who presumably, unless there's something mm. I don't know, are, are cancer-free and have never had cancer. You, you would feel this fear on a daily basis, presumably. Yes, definitely, yes. And I think one of the main issues about that is because uh, ovarian cancer symptoms are very normal symptoms that most of us in this room would have like on a daily or weekly basis. So like feeling bloated or feeling like you need to go to the toilet more or less, feeling you have some abdominal pain. And the reality is like once I was telling one of my male colleagues about it and he said, oh, I think I might have ovarian cancer (laughs) (laughs) because uh, the the symptoms are so common. And and the reality is that if I feel some of those symptoms, uh, especially if I feel that regularly over a few days or a week, uh, in my head, I feel things straight perhaps I have cancer again, yeah. or most of you would probably think, oh, I should have had the sushi from 7-Eleven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the um, radiotherapy before, we're also talking about the fear associated with cancer and how it's quite a common fear, and it must be much more so if you've already experienced it. So then how do you feel about the recent government announcement? They've announced a lot of money to support uh, early early detection trials, I think, of ovarian cancer. Is that, you think that's a good idea? That, that's a, a great idea. One of the main issues with ovarian cancer is that there are no early markers and most people would rely on symptoms. And as I said, the symptoms are, are so common symptoms that most people would have that even for doctors, they find it very difficult to identify early. So having a reliable marker would be amazing. Yeah. Mm. Now, Francine, I think, uh, first of all, it's absolutely amazing that you're doing the stuff that you do. And we, you know, we're, we're very proud of that we think it's, it's great that you're willing to come on air and talk about it. And I think Thank a lot you. of people who are in this situation listening would be helped, whether it's them or their family members or, or friends. But it's, um, you know, you are definitely not fraudulent in talking about this. And I think your experiences uh, are going to help a, a lot of people. And I've seen, I've seen you do that on social media a lot. So Thank thanks you. for doing that. What we also have you on to talk about, though, is your your research at the moment around hypertension and what's going on there. And I think this is one of these scenarios where you've been very successful in your lab-based research, and it is now transitioning into clinical trials, so transitioning out of the lab. So first of all, what's that like for you as a a researcher? Because they're they're very different types of work. Yeah, and it's actually quite amazing to be in that position because our uh, initial findings in animal models uh, were just published in 2017. Mm And this year I started my clinical trial from uh, based on those findings. So it's uh, an amazing opportunity as a, a basic scientist, like a, a lab-based scientist, to be able to go from uh, having findings in animal models to a clinical trial in only two years. Yeah. Um, and uh, it has been a, 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 an amazing amazing opportunity for uh, growth as well, um, trying to deal with all the ethical side and um, seeing how like this uh, clinical trial involves food, so seeing how we actually prepare food for a trial, 
what is behind the whole thing and uh, and dealing with patients as well. Like I have a, a fantastic coordinator that deals with yeah. the patients on a daily basis, but we talk a lot about it and saying all the difficulties behind also running that. Yeah. Now, a few years ago, I said that there were three things that really super interested me in science over the next decade. One was the science of the brain, neuroscience. The other was the microbiome. And the third was the immune system. And we're seeing uh, in these areas, they're just areas of science that are exploding. But the, the microbiome and the microbiota and so forth is what you're you know, partly engaged with here around hypertension. So how how do those things link up? That, that's a very good question because it actually might be related to the other two uh, right. of your interests. <laughs> so uh, hypertension is a very complex disease and we know that blood pressure in our body is regulated by a lot of different organs. So we have, for example, some uh, uh, brain uh, regulation of hypertension, especially like the sympathetic nervous system, mm -hmm. so that fight or flight response. Yep. Uh, we also have the kidneys that regulate as uh, Melinda was mentioning before, about like how much water and also sodium in our body gets filtered. Uh, we have the immune system now that has an important role. And we think that the immune system might be one of the systems that links uh, the gut and blood pressure. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so if we can, so I suppose if we're going to moderate something there, and this is where your clinical trials coming in, are we moderating the immune system or are we moderating the gut? Like which part do we go after? Uh, that, that's a very good question. So we're actually hoping to do both uh, by using one specific type of manipulation of the okay. gut. So uh, in this trial, we're giving our participants either a placebo diet or a diet that contains high levels of a special type of fiber that has been modified to have certain metabolites that we have shown before to lower blood pressure. And what we're hoping is that these high levels of fiber and then the metabolites, they'll change the type of microbes in the gut, but they will also prime immune cells. And some of these immune cells, uh, some other researchers in the field have shown, and we have some evidence to show that they go uh, up with fiber. Mm, so uh, we right. think that by modulating the type of microbes and the substances that they release when, they, when we eat the fiber, uh, they can then change the type of immune cell composition and that might be able to prevent the development of hypertension. So, so one of the things I'm curious about here is when you say high levels of fiber, um, I remember once I was emceeing an event where people were talking about the um, some of the sort of uh, you know the, the gut stuff you can take, like the um, you know the, the live bacteria and so forth. And, and there was a person in the audience that said, you know, how many of those should I feed my child? And they said, no, no, no. In these experiments with the with the mouse model, it was the equivalent of a forty gallon drum, you know, and you, you couldn't consume that much in a day. So, what levels of fiber is? You know, how much do we have to consume? Yeah. So that's a that's a good question because. I don't think we actually know from uh, the studies that we have at the moment uh, how much we should consume. One of the issues is that when we talk fiber, that's a very general term for yeah. a lot of different types of fiber. So we have soluble fiber, insoluble, and also resistant starches. And most of our research is based on resistant starches. And uh, they're very tricky to measure because, uh, for example, sources of resistant starch would be uh, potatoes or pasta that have been cooked and cooled down. So that right. changes the structure. But when you interview viewing people and getting like food records nobody actually asked so how did you eat your pasta was, yeah, was it cold <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> who eats cold well i guess you, you might eat it in a salad but it, so is there a difference there between eating 
the cold pasta and the hot pasta and whether or not it will help my hypertension. Yeah, so even al dente pasta will be better in terms of the uh, resistant starches, but also there is some research showing that if you cook it and you cool it down and then you reheat, you might still keep this modified structure. So if you eat next day pasta, yeah. (laughs) So I have a lot of things whirling my head about processed food here. The the two things that came to mind were um, there's finally a lot of pressure on processed food to reduce the amount of sugar, and there's this huge drive to replace it with bulking agents. And these bulking agents are very commonly insoluble fibers and digestible fibers or resistant starches. Um, So I guess the first part was in your, this is when you say particular type of fiber, you're not talking about just feeding people a lot of carrots. This is actually something that's processed and formulated to, to actually go into their diet is to get that high amount. But is there some potential where if you figure out what the roadmap to be, it might actually have a strong follow-on in processed foods? Uh, that's that's an interesting question. Uh, we are doing some more studies in our clinical, like in preclinical models to see whether they have any uh, um, other, like potentially not beneficial effects. Uh, but so far, even in type one diabetes, for example, this type of fiber has also been shown to be beneficial. So, there might be uh, other avenues as well of uh, research for this type of fiber particularly. Yeah, so far it seems to be beneficial in other diseases. So then coming back to this idea of the clinical trial, and I know every time we have someone on the show who comes in and talks about a clinical trial, we get phone calls afterwards saying, how can I get involved in this clinical trial? So I'll ask you about that in a minute. But first, I'm thinking more about the science behind this, thinking about focusing on the the gut microbiome. And everybody's is different and we're, there's so much we still need to know about it. Obviously, you're looking for people with hypertension, or high blood pressure. Um, but are you also looking for people who have a certain uh, cocktail in their gut? currently you know missing something or got too much of something we i don't think we know that yet i think like in terms of the gut microbiota in uh, all sorts of diseases and even in healthy states we're still scratching the surface of what constitutes a healthy microbiota and uh, we don't have that type of information yet uh, so hopefully our trial is going to help to inform some of that mm-hmm. what's your take on poo transplants francine uh I think that's an extreme. <laughs> um, I, I'm not a, uh, in big favor of that or probiotics as well, yeah, because right. in the end of the day, if people are not eating what's going to feed those new microbes, they're not going to stick around and actually do what we need them to do. And, and how long does it take for me to modify the microbes that I've got? Like, so, I mean, one of the questions I always have is if I take a course of antibiotics, how long does it take me to get back? To get back, I'm not so sure. There was some research, though, that showed that having probiotics didn't seem to help to get the microbiome back. Mm. Um, But in terms of just modifying with food, uh, the microbiotes are really uh, amazing that can change in a few days if you modify your diet. However, as soon as you go back to your old habits, the microbes go back too. Yeah, so I suppose the the take-home here is eat well. Consistently. uh, Consistently. Your trial will come out. I'm assuming, is it still, uh, people can still get into it, can't yeah, they? Yeah, so yeah, we're still recruiting. How, how do they yes. do that? How yeah. do they go about that? They just need to get in touch with our research dietitian, Dakota, and you can find more information on our website. Okay, and we'll put that up on our yeah, Twitter perfect. feed for Thank people. You. So um, 
Thank you so much for coming in again and, and talking to us. And we're going to, I think every four years or whenever you feel comfortable, we'll come in and we'll talk about your story because it's one of those things that um, is really important for me to hear and also for you to continue promoting the, the good work you're doing in supporting cancer patients and their Thank families you. and so forth because that's really inspirational, I suspect, to a lot of people. So, uh, Francine, thanks so much for coming in and, and good luck for the next few years. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Francine Marquez is from the um, School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. Dr. Lynn, thanks so much. Good oh, to see you. Always a pleasure, Dr. Shank. Good to see you too, Dr. Ray. And pleasure seeing we'll you. We'll see you in a few weeks. Folks, thanks so much for listening to Einstein to Go Go. Remember, science is everywhere, and Triple R appreciates your support. We will chat to you again in just a week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein to Go Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Go Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.